Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Radio Estros, Episode 79, Aria Part 3. Spoilers all books! Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Estros. I'm Lady Guinevere and with me today, as always, is Yoke Boy. Hi there! Thanks so much for joining us for this episode all about Arya's arc in A Storm of Swords. From her third chapter when she begins her travels in the Riverlands with the Brotherhood Without Banners, through Irie Levin, when she arrives at the Twins with Sandor Clegane just as the Red Wedding is playing out. In those nine chapters, Arya will learn what it means to be a highborn captive, what wolves, the humankind, are capable of, and what justice means to Lord Beric's Brotherhood. And speaking of Lord Beric, she'll also learn why there are so many rumours about his death and how his outlaw gang operates in the Riverlands. And when the weather turns foul, she'll get a glimpse into the different kinds of visions that are informing the Brotherhood's movements, and she'll fall out with her friendly captors on account of one of them. Her new captor will be less friendly, but just as astute in calculating her value. And so, Aya will spend a number of rain-soaked days travelling with her enemy number one, Sandor Clegane, en route to the twins to find her mother and brother. And we'll leave that mismatched pair there with one of George's famous cliffhanger chapter endings. Arya's final two chapters of A Storm of Swords, spent wandering the post-Red Wedding region with the Hound, will be covered in the next installment, along with her handful of chapters in Bravos. But before we start today, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons, and our deepest thanks go to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Akka in the Company of the Cats, Chris B. the Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Moltude, John Wargarian, and M.T. Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J., the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop. House motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. 
And if you want to support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash Radio Westeros and you could be getting early access to episodes, personalised shoutouts and more. So thank you to all patrons. We really couldn't do this without you. And now it's time to get started with Aya in a Storm of Swords. She had been better off as Squab. No one would take Squab captive, or Nan, or Weasel, or Ari the orphan boy. I was a wolf, she thought, but now I'm just some stupid little lady again. Arya Stark spent much of A Clash of Kings under a series of assumed names, from Ari to Lumbyhead, Weasel to Nan, and finally Squab. Her identity crisis was so profound that when she heard talk at Harrenhal of the burning of Winterfell, the seat of House Stark, she worried she was so untethered from her Stark identity that it may have also gone up in flames, thinking... Am I still Aya or only Nan the Serving Girl for forever and forever and forever? But early in the Storm of Swords, in the scene with which we concluded our last instalment, she was finally recognised once more as the Hand's daughter, Aya Stark of Winterfell. But that phrase hints at a more subtle identity issue, one that will be explored in this segment. By linking her identity to her father, his position, and their house, Harwin, and George, indicates her value to her present companions. As we'll see, she becomes in all reality a prisoner once again, having traded the shackles of servitude common in the lower classes for the more gentle but equally restrictive bonds of nobility. Arya will travel with the Brotherhood without banners, not as a free person who brings value to the group, as Harwin and Thomas Evans and ultimately even Gendry do, but as a hostage who has tremendous value on account of that very identity Harwin announced in Arya II of A Storm of Swords, the Hand's daughter, Arya Stark of Winterfell. In essence, she went from being the leader of her little band to a very valuable piece of baggage as soon as Harwin uttered those words. During this period, she'll be dubbed with a new name by Greenbeard, the Tyroshi Lieutenant of the Brotherhood Without Banners, Squirrel. He will repeatedly call her by variations of this term, much to Aya's frustration, Skinny Squirrel, Angry Squirrel, and perhaps most significantly, Golden Squirrel. After days of travelling in what she determined to be the wrong direction, Aya demanded to be brought directly to her family at Riverrun. Greenbeard, the highest-ranking member of the Brotherhood present, told her, Little one, a peasant may skin a common squirrel for his pot, but if he finds a gold squirrel in his tree, he takes it to his lord, or he will wish he did. In other words, his only intention was to bring her to see Lord Beric Dondarrion, their commander, so that Beric could decide her worth. While the Tyrashi and others attempted to reassure Arya that they were certain Lord Beric would return her to her mother, this was incredibly frustrating to Arya. To arrive within a few days' journey of the place her mother and Rob are known to be, only to be told that she could not continue on, in spite of Harwin's presence and her repeated pleading and promises that there would be a reward if they just brought her to her family, was galling. Her sudden and unexpected reunion with Harwin had left her certain that here, at last, was that long-awaited adult who would help her 
Why did she go through all the traumatic work of escaping and reclaiming her identity, of becoming a wolf instead of a mouse, if it did her no good at all? With Hot Pie remaining at the Inn of the Kneeling Man, Aya's only companion from the group she had left King's Landing with all those months ago was Gendry, quote, the only true friend she had. But having Harwin seemed to help, at first. He told her most of what had happened since he left King's Landing in her father's service, including the story of the ambush at Mummer's Ford and Beric's apparent near-death experience there and the formation of the Brotherhood as an outlaw band fighting to protect the small folk of the Riverlands from the Lannister campaign of destruction. This was the time when Gregor Clegane, Amory Lorch and others were carrying out Tywin Lannister's orders to set the Rivlands afire, from the God's Eye to the Red Fork. The time of greatest danger to travellers and small folk, as Arya had discovered during her journey with Euron. With Rob newly declared king at Riverrun and consolidating his scattered forces there, there was little opposition to the Lannister Reavers, and so the outlaws viewed themselves as a necessary and logical response, and their effectiveness is attested to by the repeated mention of them in Tyrion's late A Game of Thrones chapters, and in the questions both Amory Lorch and Gregor Clegane seemed so keen to have answered in Arya's POV chapters from Clash. Where is the Lightning Lord, and how many followers does he have? But the insistence of the group that she be taken first to Lord Beric, whose exact location no one seemed to know, made her increasingly uneasy. It came to a head when, after Greenbeard's insistence that she was a golden squirrel, she asked a question she almost certainly knew the answer to. Why do I have to see Lord Beric? It was Angai, who didn't know her and had no reason to prevaricate, who answered her with the unvarnished truth. We bring him all our highborn captives. The word captive inspired a sort of panic in Aya. Traumatised by her periods of captivity at the storehouse and later Harrenhal, her immediate thought was only of escape. It says, Captive. Aya took a breath to still her soul, calm as still water. She glanced at the outlaws on their horses and turned her horse's head. Now, quick as a snake, she thought, and she slammed her heels into the courser's flank. Right between Greenbeard and Jack B. Lucky she flew and caught one glimpse of Gendry's startled face as his mare moved out of her way. And then she was in the open field and running. Arya ran from the very idea of being a captive again. Unfortunately for her, she was pursued by none other than Harwin, more than likely one of the very people who had taught her how to ride back at Winterfell. When he caught her, after all the other pursuers had fallen behind, he first paid her a compliment. You ride like a Northman, milady," Followed by a comparison and a gentle reminder. Your aunt was the same, Lady Lyanna, but my father was master of horse, remember. In the face of her obvious feeling of betrayal, Harwin tried to explain himself, telling her, Lord Eddard's dead, milady. I belong to the Lightning Lord now. We mean your brother Rob no ill, milady, but it's not him we fight for. He has an army of his own and many a great lord to bend the knee. The small folk have only us. Can you understand what I'm telling you? 
To Arya, still only a ten-year-old in spite of all she'd been through, philosophy and altruism boiled down to only one thing. He was not Rob's man, she understood well enough, and she was his captive. Of all the disappointments she had suffered in the previous months, getting her hopes up that this one or that one would help her, Harwin must have hurt the worst. Here was someone she had known and trusted all her life, and now it seemed all she was to him was a golden squirrel. While Aya wasn't to be locked up in a castle like Sansa, for the next few weeks that she would spend with the Brotherhood, her captivity would strongly resemble that of her sister. Aya's value as a highborn lady who could be used to wring some benefit from her family far exceeded her value as a lost child who desired only to be reunited with that family. This was not the captivity of a young girl posing as a peasant whose value was in the work she could provide for her captors. This new prison was based on her core identity, something she had only just recovered at great personal cost, and her frustration spilled over into despair. She had been better off as Squab. No one would take Squab captive, or Nan, or Weasel, or Arry the orphan boy. I was a wolf, she thought, but now I'm just some stupid little lady again. All Arya's hard work at reclaiming her identity had led her to this place where it must be painfully clear that who she was, girl, wolf, daughter, sister, friend, fighter, leader, must give way to who her family was and where she had been born. And as that realization was coming to her in those first days with the Brotherhood, it says she dreamed of her home. Here's the passage. It was not a good dream, though. She was alone outside the castle, up to her knees in mud. She could see the gray walls ahead of her, and when she tried to reach the gates, every step seemed harder than the one before, and the castle faded before her until it looked more like smoke than granite. And there were wolves as well, gaunt gray shapes stalking through the trees all around her, their eyes shining. Whenever she looked at them, she remembered the taste of blood. So there seem to be two main things going on there. First, Arya sees Winterfell, which she had only recently heard had been burned, and which was now looming large as a defining element of her identity. If her value to the Brotherhood Without Banners, and by extension to her brother, was based on her identity of Arya Stark of Winterfell, and Winterfell was burned and gone, what value did she possess any longer? This is similar to her worry of having to be Nan forever and ever when she first heard about the sack of her home while at Harrenhal. Having your core identity linked to a place is confusing enough. But when you're told that that place is gone, what does that mean to you? Being stuck in the mud as the castle faded before her reflects her anxiety over this element of her identity. Second, in the dream she is surrounded by wolves and the taste of blood. This element must be somewhat closer to her physical location, Nymeria's wolf pack in the Riverlands. This is a wolf dream after all, and she is Nymeria with a new pack, a new home, something Aya has been searching for that continually eludes her, much like the walls of Winterfell in the dream. 
But Wolf Aya is yet another element of her identity that probably won't count for much in the Brotherhood's accounting of her value, adding to the overall anxious feeling of the dream. It was not a good dream, as it says. So Arya promised Harwin she'd ride peacefully with the group, though internally she qualified her promise with for now, and indeed she does as her next two chapters chronicle the travels of the small band around the Riverlands as they search for Lord Beric. At one point, a curious Arya will ask why the group don't know where to find their own leader, and after Harwin described the logistical reasons for the Brotherhood carrying out their business in small cells, a common enough guerrilla tactic, he adds, and when one of us is caught and put to the question, well, we can't tell them where to find Lord Beric, no matter what they do to us. Being put to the question is something Aya understands very well, since Beric's location was the main focus of the Tickler's interrogations in the storehouse by the lakeshore. But, of course, in her experience, specific knowledge, or lack thereof, made little difference to the outcome for the folk being questioned. No one had ever survived the tickler's questioning, and as she described it, Harwin reacted in horror, offering the hope that perhaps the tickler had perished along with the half of Gregor's men who died fighting the Tullys at the Battle of the Fords two months ago. Harwin, of course, was wrong, as Arya would soon discover, though that's a story for another episode. One of the first places the group stopped in their search for news of Lord Beric was Leicester Keep, home to Lord Leicester, a, quote, great grey knight who was so old he did not understand their questions. Leicester Keep is described as half a ruin, and a look at the history books gives a hint as to why. Over 250 years before Arya arrived there with the Brotherhood, a Lord John Leicester joined with the Faith Militant in their uprising against King Magor Targaryen, facing the king on his dragon at the Battle of the Great Fork of the Blackwater. In retaliation, the history books tell us that the following year, quote, the Dowager Queen, Visenya, mounted Vagar and brought fire and blood to the Riverlands as once she had done to Dorne. In a single night, the seats of House Blaintree, Terrick, Deddings, Leicester, and Wayne were set aflame. So perhaps it's safe to assume that the fortunes of House Leicester, and particularly the condition of their keep, had never been repaired. Lord Leicester is also described as repeating the same tale whenever someone asked him a question. I held the bridge against Sir Maynard. Red hair and a black temper he had, but he could not move me. Six wounds I took before I killed him. Six! While Aya's companions assume the bridge in question was the one outside his keep, the tale, brief as it is, suggests something else. A Westerosi lord fighting against a knight with a Westerosi name indicates civil war, and that, of course, points us in the direction of the Blackfire rebellions. Given Lord Leicester's description as an old man in 299 AC, whose sons had died in Robert's Rebellion some 15 years previously, the rebellion that perhaps best lines up with Lord Leicester's age is the Fourth Blackfire Rebellion of 236 AC. The decisive battle of that conflict? The Battle of Wendwater Bridge in the Stormlands. 
perhaps we can look forward to a future instalment of Duncan Egg, wherein Lord Leicester will be at that decisive battle fighting Sir Maynard on the opposite side. Unfortunately, the maester at Leicester Hall didn't have any news about Lord Berwick other than to tell them he was dead, hanged by the Lannisters near the God's Eye. Lem dismissed that news as stale. Thoros cut Beric down and revived him, it seemed, and we can add that to the growing list of times Arya hears news of the Lightning Lord's death. Without fresh news to offer, Maester Rune suggested the group seek out the Lady of the Leaves, who turned out to be a village elder of sorts. But her village was unlike anything we, or Arya for that matter, have ever seen in Westeros. It says... Rope ladders unrolled from the limbs of trees, and they climbed to a hidden village in the upper branches, a maze of rope walkways and little moss-covered houses concealed behind walls of red and gold. The lady made it clear to her visitors that with autumn approaching, her people would have to leave the trees or risk being discovered, so it's clear the purpose of their unique living arrangement is camouflage and that it's essentially temporary. What's fascinating about the hidden village in the trees is that back in A Game of Thrones, Maester Lewin told Bran that in the Dawn Age, some of the children of the forest lived in, quote, secret tree towns. And so while the folk who live in the lady's village seem entirely human, there's something otherworldly and almost dreamlike about the description of their town. We have to wonder if their village was inspired by the legendary tradition of the children, handed down amongst the small folk of Westeros since the Dawn Age and the Age of Heroes. The Lady of the Leaves also gave them news of Beric's death, gleaned from a traveling, begging brother. She said, The mountain caught him and drove a dagger through his eye. Once again, this tale was dismissed as old and stale. As Lem declared, Sir Gregor might have put his eye out, but a man don't die of that. Counting what Harwin had told her about the aftermath of the battle at Mummer's Ford when, quote, Thoros drew a foot of lance from Beric's chest, Arya has now heard at least five stories about Beric's apparent death, remembering that archer at Harrenhal who had claimed the bloody Mummers had killed him, only to be told that Lorch killed him at Rushing Falls and the mountains slain him twice. The dagger and the lance that Arya heard about in these chapters may have been the mountain's two kills, but add to those a hanging and whatever Amory Lorch and the Mummers did, and it's becoming pretty obvious that something odd is going on with Lord Beric's mortality. And the group's next stop was a village called Salidance, where the old Septon told them how their sept was ransacked by men looking for Jamie Lannister. Northmen they were, savages who worshipped trees. They wanted the Kingslayer, they said. This picks up on a growing theme of Northmen roaming the Riverlands who posed just as much danger to small folk as Lannisters. When Tom and Lem first found Aya and her companions, they'd cautioned them about wolves and lions, clearly referring to men and not beasts. Then the Lady of the Leaves mentioned them again, stating, A dozen wolves went down the Hayford Road nine days past, hunting. The Septon at Salidance provided the answer to what the wolves were hunting for, which confirms the rumour they had heard days before at an abandoned village they took shelter in. There were men through here not two days past, looking for the Kingslayer. 
Arya was clearly growing discomforted by the reports of Northmen behaving as enemy of the people. When the Septon told how the Northerners had ransacked his sept, it says, quote, She heard him and chewed her lip. She could feel Gendry looking at her. It made her angry and ashamed. No doubt Arya wants all of her father's men, now her brother's men, to behave as heroes. But her innate caution and wariness around Roose Bolton proved that she is aware that isn't always the case. So perhaps we can infer that she was trying to determine what could be going on here. As it happens, these details in Arya's chapters serve to pin her arc to the rest of the narrative of A Storm of Swords as Jaime Lannister makes his way across the Riverlands in a reverse parallel to Arya's journey. And it won't be long before we get an inkling of who those ravaging wolves might be. But before that, the conversation at Sally Dance turns to Riverrun and the idea of collecting a ransom for Arya. The concept of her value as a highborn lady comes to the fore and, acutely conscious that her actions during the months since she was first separated from her father would not be considered all that ladylike, she worried that her value would not be up to par. It says, but what if Rob won't pay their price? She wasn't a famous knight and kings were supposed to put the realm before their sisters. And her lady mother, what would she say? Would she still want her back after all the things she'd done? Aya chewed her lip and wondered. This is the second time in one short scene that she's noted to be chewing her lip. It's a descriptive characteristic that follows her from one of her earliest chapters in A Game of Thrones, and it's generally an indicator that she's thinking or uncertain about something. We'll keep our eye on it because much later, when she's once again assumed an identity that is not Arya Stark of Winterfell, chewing her lip will be a tell of much more than earnest contemplation. Here, Arya is considering her core identity and her worth to her family, as well as the reasons why the Brotherhood would be seeking a ransom for her return. As Harwin put it, We have sore need of horses, milady, armor as well, swords, shields, spears, all the things coin can buy, ay, and seed for planting. Winter is coming, remember? Linking the privation of the Riverlands to House Stark's words must have given her real food for thought. She knew as much as anyone about the hardships and fear faced by the small folk of the Riverlands, and critically here, her worry seems to be that Rob won't find her as valuable as the Brotherhood thinks she is. What would that mean to her identity, to her future? And perhaps, in the back of her mind, if she was unsatisfactory, what impact might that have on the Brotherhood's mission? It was certainly a lot for a ten-year-old to process, and a lot of pressure on her small shoulders. And the next day, with those worries swirling in her mind, the group departed Sally Dance, continuing their search for Lord Beric. The next day, they rode to a place called High Heart, a hill so lofty that from atop it, Arya felt as though she could see half the world. Around its brow stood a ring of huge, pale stumps, all that remained of a circle of once mighty weirwoods. Arya and Gendry walked around the hill to count them. There were thirty-one, some so wide that she could have used them for a bed. High Heart had been sacred to the children of the forest, Tom Sevenstrings told her, and some of their magic lingered here still. No harm can ever come to those as sleep here, the singer said. Arya thought that must be true. The hill was so high and the surrounding land so flat 
that no enemy could approach unseen. We're told that when the Brotherhood arrived at a place called High Heart, it was quickly marked as a place special to Aya's gods as she and Gendry explored its heights and discovered the remains of a fabulously huge grove of weirwood trees. The description, around its brows stood a ring of huge pale stumps, all that remained of a circle of once mighty weirwoods. There were 31, some so wide that she could have used them for a bed, is followed by Tom O'Sevens's story that the place had once been sacred to the children of the forest, and that the local small folk considered it haunted. Apparently the sacred trees had been destroyed by an Andal king known as Eric the Kinslayer, and the ghosts of the children he had killed in the process had remained, allegedly along with some of their magic. It says Arya knew about the children of the forest and about the Andals too, but ghosts did not frighten her. She used to hide in the crypts of Winterfell when she was little and play games of coming to my castle and monsters and maidens amongst the stone kings on their thrones. But as much as the ghosts of her ancestors may have held no fears for her, there was someone at High Heart whose presence made her question everything she thought she knew about the vanished children of the forest. She saw her when the wind woke her during the night, sitting at the fire with Lem, Tom, and Greenbeard, quote, a tiny little woman, a foot shorter than Arya and older than old Nan, all stooped and wrinkled and leaning on a gnarled black cane. Her white hair was so long it came almost to the ground. When the wind gusted, it blew about her head in a fine cloud. Her flesh was whiter, the color of milk, and it seemed to Arya that her eyes were red, though it was hard to tell. The tiny old woman was, as all the people they had visited had done, telling the leaders of their little band her news. Her news, though, was unlike any other Aya had overheard. It began with the gods of her homeland and swiftly moved into the arcane. It says, The old gods stir and will not let me sleep, she heard the woman say. I dreamt I saw a shadow with a burning heart, butchering a golden stag, I... I dreamt of a man without a face, waiting on a bridge that swayed and swung. On his shoulder perched a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from its wings. I dreamt of a roaring river and a woman that was a fish. Dead she drifted, with red tears on her cheeks. But when her eyes did open, oh, I woke from terror. All this I dreamt and more. Do you have gifts for me? to pay me for my dreams. Unbeknownst to Arya, the woman was describing the deaths of two of the kings fighting in the conflict that had come to be known as the War of the Five Kings, as well as that of her own mother. When Arya asked Tom about her the next morning, wondering if she had somehow seen one of the vanished children of the forest, or perhaps one of their ghosts, Tom demurred that she was only an old dwarf woman, though he did admit that, quote, she knows things that she has no business knowing, and sometimes she'll tell you if she likes the look of you. Tom's appeal seemed to come from his ability to sing a certain song as payment for her news, which to his satisfaction had given them a direction in which to quest for Lord Beric. He told Arya, you'll soon be seeing Thoros and the Lightning Lord, I'll wager. 
The hunt for Beric and Thoris of Mir next led the group to Acorn Hall, seat of House Smallwood, whose lady, Angai told Aya, was an old friend, and possibly one-time lover, of Tom O'Sevenstreams. Lord Smallwood was away serving Rob Stark as part of Lord Vance's retinue, but the lady welcomed the group and took Aya under her wing. After learning she was highborn, Lady Smallwood had her ladies bathe Aya and dress her in girl's clothing, a dress decorated with acorns that had once belonged to her own daughter. Attempting to find common ground with Aya, Lady Smallwood asked her what sort of activities she enjoyed, clearly expecting a suitable response such as singing or dancing or needlework. Yeah. Arya knows how to deal with such questions, and her reply about needlework prompted the clearly religious lady to tell her, The gods give each of us our little gifts and talents, and it is meant for us to use them. Any act can be a prayer if done as well as we are able. Isn't that a lovely thought? Remember that the next time you practice your needlework. Given the upcoming intersection of Arya's needlework and her prayers, a combination that would no doubt horrify the good Lady Smallwood, perhaps we can view this particular comment as prefiguring that intersection in a very broad sense. Lady Smallwood told the group that Beric and Thoros were at Acorn Hall a mere fortnight ago, driving a herd of captured sheep before them. While she had no certain knowledge of their next destination, she did have a suggestion, saying, Lord Beric never shares his plans, but there's hunger down near Stony Sept and the Threepenny Wood. I should look for him there. She also shared other news which seemed to confirm what they had heard at Sally Dance. You'd best know, I've had less pleasant callers as well. A pack of wolves came howling around my gates, thinking I might have Jamie Lannister in here. That got Arya's attention, and she asked who the Northmen were. Lady Smallwood couldn't say for sure, but she did note that they wore black, with the badge of a white sun on the breast. Arya knew this to be the sigil of House Karstark, and briefly wondered if she could escape and find them. Her assumption that they would bring her to Rob was obviously born from ignorance of the events at River Run over the past weeks. The Karstarks were, in actuality, searching for Jamie Lannister to take vengeance for their dead. By this time, Jamie had more than likely been captured and behanded by the brave companions and brought to Harrenhal, a detail unknown to most of Rob's followers due to the already double-dealing Roose Bolton. Ironically, with his maiming of Lord Tywin's son, the Brave Companion's commander, Vargo Hote, had hoped to simultaneously discredit Roose Bolton, whom he suspected of treachery following the Lannister victory at Blackwater, and to gain favor, and perhaps even a wife, from House Karstark by turning the Kingslayer over to them. Also unbeknownst to Aya was that the split between House Stark and Karstark had been precipitated, among other things, by the act Aya heard about next. Lady Catelyn set him free. At this point, the adults realised that Aya was listening closely and sent her out of earshot, where she was joined by Gendry. Gendry wanted to look at the forge, and there he told her how he knew Thoros of Mere from King's Landing, and how he wished he could still be at a forge, making swords. Aya, who considered him her only friend, 
wanted him to accompany her to Riverrun, but Gendry was doubtful. Commenting on her new dress and that she both looked and smelled nice was apparently the wrong thing to say as Arya took the opportunity to start a wrestling match which ended with her dress torn and her clothes and hair covered in dirt. Back in the hall, Tom was singing a song about a strong-willed maiden known as the Maiden of the Tree, whom we've speculated elsewhere may have been inspired by none other than Lyanna Stark, which would make this the second time Arya's aunt has been referenced in as many chapters. Lem clouded Gendry for fighting with a girl, but Harwin only laughed and made a revealing comment that surely could not have escaped the perceptive Lady Smallwood. It says, Leave the boy, Lem, said Harwin. Arya did start it, I have no doubt. She was much the same at Winterfell. While we should file away the detail that Lady Smallwood almost certainly knows Arya's true identity, the visit to Acorn Hall concluded the following day after the lady gave Arya yet another bath and another set of clothes, more suitable for riding, that had once belonged to her late son. Arya apologized about the dress, saying, I'm sorry I tore the acorn dress, too. It was pretty. Lady Smallwood, who could probably guess some of the storm the little girl was riding into, replied, Yes, child, and so are you. Be brave. Arriving in Stony Sept a fortnight later, it says Stony Sept was the biggest town I had seen since King's Landing, and Harwin said her father had won a famous battle here. Harwin told Arya about the Battle of the Bells from Robert's Rebellion, but it's clear Stony Sept had experienced violence and destruction more recently. The residents mention a Sir Wilbert, dead at Lannister Hands, who may have been a landed knight who controlled the town. Now authorities seem to rest with a local associate of the BWB known only as the Mad Huntsman, or the Huntsman. We don't learn anything else about the man other than that Lannisters who sacked the town violated his wife and sister and killed a sheep and many of his dogs. It's possible the huntsman served Sir Wilbert as his master of hunt, but what really matters is that he hated Lannisters, although, as we'll see, he didn't reserve his hatred for Lannisters alone. One of the townsmen told Tom that they'd had some luck obtaining food for the townspeople, but added, Of course, there's plenty want to take what we got. Wolves one day, mummers the next. Them that's not looking for food are looking for plunder or women to take, and them that's not out for gold or wenches are looking for the bloody Kingslayer. Talk is he slipped right through Lord Edmure's fingers. Once again, Arya was hearing about wolves committing atrocities and Jamie Lannister roaming free, although, unbeknownst to her, the former is a direct corollary of the latter. This came to a head when the group arrived in the town square. Here's a passage. In the market square at the town's heart stood a fountain in the shape of a leaping trout spouting water into a shallow pool. Women were filling pails and flagons there. A few feet away, a dozen iron cages hung from creaking wooden posts. Crow cages, Arya knew. The crows were mostly outside the cages, splashing in the water or perched atop the bars. Inside were men. There were at least seven men in the cages, who were identified as wolves, and three of them were still alive. When she heard there were Northmen, it says, Arya went cold, Rob's men, and my father's. 
What she cannot know in the moment is that they were Carstark men who had abandoned her brother and had been looking for Jamie Lannister as other Carstarks had been doing in the Riverlands for some weeks now. These men had been taken by the huntsmen after killing eight people at a place called Tumblers Falls. A townsman told them they wanted the Kingslayer, but he wasn't there, so they did some murder. Tumblers Falls is a village near the headwaters of the Blackwater Rush and is where Tywin Lannister joined his army with Mace Tyrells in order to barge downriver to save King's Landing from Stannis Baratheon. It also happens to be the place many of the locals assumed Jaime would have headed for, and apparently some Karstarks did as well, since much of their search for him was focused in that area. Of course, as we said, even though the men in the cages had likely been hanging there for a few days by the time Arya and her companions arrived, by this time, Jamie was likely safe behind the walls of Harrenhal in the hands of Roose Bolton. The explanation of their crimes did little to prevent Arya from having a moment of cognitive dissonance. It says, Wolves, she thought again, like me. Was this her pack? How could they be Rob's men? She wanted to hit them. She wanted to hurt them. She wanted to cry. They all seemed to be looking at her, the living and the dead alike. However, we quickly see what a Stark is made of when she determinedly delivered each of the living men a drink of water before standing back so that Angai could put them out of their misery with three well-placed arrows. This is the verdict and fate her father or her brother might have delivered, to accept their guilt and assure them a swift death while she watched with eyes wide open, thinking Vala Morghulis, as the men died, is not only highly attuned to the Stark way, but it represents a growing theme of mercy in Aya's arc. Ned Stark may have told his young wife, the North is hard and cold and has no mercy, many years ago, but clearly he wasn't referring to the concept of mercy as it intersects with justice. Mercy does exist in the North, though it's not necessarily the mercy of our own world, where there's a tradition in many cultures of allowing the condemned a final drink or meal. The last meal, or wine of the condemned, may have biblical roots, but it is certainly based upon the symbolic nature of the exchange of food. In accepting the food or drink, a bond was formed between the condemned and the executioner, which superstitious peoples thought might prevent the spirits of the condemned from returning to haunt the executioners. Here in Stony Sept, we may see the last drink as symbolic of a guilty verdict in a similar way, but Arya's mercy, with its connection to the North and the Old Gods, is notably about judgment rather than forgiveness. Thus, the drink and the mercy follow an age-old formula of stern judgment, followed by the gift of a swift death. Perhaps most significantly, this scene, connecting a drink of water and the gift of mercy as it does, looks ahead to two key moments in Arya's future arc with Sandor. As we'll discuss in the next instalment of this series, in Arya 12 of A Storm of Swords, while in the Riverlands with Sandor after the Red Wedding, they will encounter a bowman bearing the sigil of House Piper upon his surcoat. This wretched man, dying slowly, will beg for a drink of wine. After giving him a draught of water, Sandor will show Arya how to give the gift of mercy, teaching her, That's where the heart is, girl. That's how you kill a man. This will be significant again later in their story when Sandor himself is mortally wounded. 
These are scenes that will be explored more fully in another episode, but for these purposes, we wanted to mention the significant connection that's been forged between a drink and the gift of mercy. That Sandor himself will teach Arya to deliver the gift not only emphasises his own increasing northernness, but serves as a hinge in Arya's arc, both looking back towards her roots and forwards towards her future in Bravos and beyond. Following the deaths of the men in the cages, the group retired to a nearby inn called the Peach, which Arya shortly determined must be a brothel, though Gendry didn't think she knew exactly what that meant. Speaking of Gendry, one of the girls at the inn, called Bella, tried to seduce him. She declared that she was a king's daughter, fathered by Robert Baratheon when he hid out in the town before the Battle of the Bells. Like the baby Barra, sired on a sex worker back in King's Landing, Maya Stone in the Vale, Edric Storm now at Dragonstone, and in fact Gendry himself, Bella is black of hair. It says, The girl did have hair like the old king's, Arya thought. A great thick mop of it, as black as coal. That doesn't mean anything, though. Gendry has the same kind of hair, too. Lots of people have black hair. Arya failed to make the connection, even though she was aware of a mysterious secret about Gendry that led Cersei to seek him out. But of course the reader does, and we all no doubt sighed with relief when Gendry rejected the girl and left the room. In the meantime, Arya saw Tansy, the Keeper of the Peach, talking with Lem and Harwin. It's clear that Jamie Lannister was once again the topic of conversation, as Arya heard her say, Spent the night in Jamie's cell. Her and this other wench, the one who slew Renly. All three of them together. And come the morn, Lady Catelyn cut him loose for love. Arya's heard a lot of rumor and conjecture about her mother and Jamie Lannister in the last few weeks, as well as a lot of stories about wolves, ostensibly her brother's men, behaving badly, and in some cases committing outright atrocities. She was weary and confused, sad and lonely, when an old man, a patron of the establishment, attempted to strike up a conversation. Arya was only further confused by this, and by Gendry appearing from nowhere to tell the man she was his sister, not realizing that her friend had just saved her from a pedophile, they quarreled, and Arya stormed off to bed. When she said her prayers that night, she was haunted by the scene in the square. She said her names aloud, mixing up the order to help her remember the names and their crimes, thinking maybe some of them are dead, maybe they're in iron cages someplace, and the crows are picking out their eyes. We can view this as an explicit plea to her gods to deliver the fate of the Karstark soldiers upon some of those on her list, her hard and cold judgement on those ten souls, as it were. Arya had a wolf dream that night, one in which she was clearly experiencing things as Nymeria, but it says, when the day came, she woke to the barking of dogs. The huntsman had returned with a captive, bound and sullen, one of the dead Karstarks, a wolf in the totemic imagery that dominates this chapter, was hauled from a cage to make way for the new captive. The line, the dogs were at him at once, tearing chunks of flesh off his bones, may presage the question of what dogs do to wolves that will absorb Arya shortly in her arc. And of course, as the men manhandled and threatened their captive, the reader can guess that that captive is Sander Clegane, enemy number one on Arya's list. Here's the passage. Down in the square, 
a thrown stone caught the captive on the cheek, turning his head. Not the kingslayer, Arya thought when she saw his face. The gods had heard her prayers after all. The men of Stony Sept seemed undeterred by Angai killing the Karstarks the day before, or by the remonstrances of Lem and Tom about justice, their words indicating that they had every intention of serving their new captive exactly what they had served the previous occupant of the cage. You rot in them cages, the crows will be picking out your eyes while we're spending all that good Lannister gold of yours. And when them crows are done, we'll send what's left of you to your bloody brother, though I doubt he'll know you. The threats mirror her own prayers of the night before, and her thoughts reveal that she thinks those prayers have been answered. Sandor Clegane was in a crow cage, and it seemed that perhaps the cold, hard justice of the North was about to be delivered to him. But, as usual, things in Martin's world are hardly so simple. When we return, we'll continue to follow Arya's A Storm of Swords journey with the Brotherhood Without Banners in the Riverlands, a journey that will introduce her at long last to Lord Beric and Thoros of Mia, but will also link her inextricably to the man now hanging in that cage. First though, it's time for us to thank our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks so much to Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Oxheart, Anna, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabot the Unfrozen, David, Dean, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, JM, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Mark, Boss, Schwartz the Black, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, the Sithorian, Sally, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, Tim Magnar of House Ten, W Sword of the Evening, and Lady Darlis of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A huge fire pit had been dug in the center of the earthen floor, and its flames rose, swirling and crackling, toward the smoke-stained ceiling. The walls were equal parts stone and soil, with huge white roots twisting through them like a thousand slow, pale snakes. People were emerging from between those roots as she watched, edging out from the shadows for a look at the captives, stepping from the mouths of pitch-black tunnels, popping out of crannies and crevices on all sides. In one place on the far side of the fire, 
the roots formed a kind of stairway up to a hollow in the earth where a man sat almost lost in the tangle of weirwood. Aria 6 of A Storm of Swords, in which Sander Clegane is put on trial by the Brotherhood Without Banners, is probably one of the best and most analyzed chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. It stands as a monument to many of the things the author has to say about knights and knighthood in general, and specifically to the complex relationship between Arya Stark, the Brotherhood, and the Hound. In fact, we've discussed it ourselves numerous times, including in our Sandor and Brotherhood Without Banners episodes. Here we'll try to keep our focus on Arya's experience, untangling the impact of its events on her from what George is conveying with the adult storylines. The chapter begins with the BWB's hooded captives, which includes Aya, Gendry, and Sandor, being led into a cave of unknown location. This cave is almost certainly the same one we return to in Brienne 8 of A Feast for Crows, and has the notable feature, as we heard in the reading we opened with, of being filled with weirwood roots. We see something very similar in Brand 2 of A Dance with Dragons when he arrives at Bloodraven's cave and meets the children of the forest. In the far north it says, The roots were everywhere, twisting through earth and stone, closing off some passages and holding up the roofs of others. There must be a whole grove of weirwoods growing up above us. And so the cave in the Riverlands is likely located below such a grove or should we say the remnants of one. For a while beyond the wall, the groves still grow, safe from invaders' axes. In the south, first the so-called First Men, and then their successors, the Andals, came with fire and axe, destroying the children's trees, and so many places that were once sacred groves had been reduced to rings of stumps. We saw one such in the Mystery Night, where Duncan Egg camp with Maynard Plum on their way to White Walls, and that might be the same location that Jamie Lannister will encounter in A Storm of Swords, having a very curious dream after laying his head down to sleep on a white stump near the God's Eye. Or it may be that the Riverlands is simply full of such secret revenants. High Heart, which Arya had already seen from its summit, is another remnant of a sacred grove, and being a tall hill, much like the one Bran encounters in the far north, is certainly a great candidate for a location that could have a cave beneath it. In any case, whether we have a couple of significant caves, or whether they secretly dot the landscape of the Riverlands, remembering that Maester Lewin told Bran in A Game of Thrones that the children of the forest, quote, lived in the depths of the wood, in caves and crannogs and secret tree towns. One feature that immediately stands out about the Brotherhood's cave on a reread is the throne. It says the roots formed a kind of stairway up to a hollow in the earth where a man sat almost lost in the tangle of weirwood. Compare this to Bran's first glimpse of his three-eyed crow two volumes later. Before them, a pale lord in ebon finery sat dreaming in a tangled nest of roots, a woven weirwood throne that embraced his withered limbs as a mother does a child. If we include the pertinent details that both Beric Dundarian and Brindam Rivers possess only one eye, and that both have lived by some magic far beyond what nature might have intended, one through a type of resurrection and one through a simple extension or drawing out of years, 
the similarities become positively eerie. If something in Aya's story arc can prefigure an experience her sibling will have several months later, here it is. What we don't know in Arya's chapter, but later learn from Brands, is that the thrones are commonly used for green seers to connect with the network of weirwood trees. In addition to Brynden, Bran encounters another part of his cave, quote, full of singers, enthroned like Brynden in nests of weirwood roots that wove under and through and around their bodies. And so, presenting Beric Dondarrion, the first time Arya meets him, surrounded by weirwood roots like a green seer, serves to highlight the mystical nature of the man's continued life. Arya had already heard of at least five times that Beric supposedly died, and at the end of this chapter, she'll experience firsthand what that looks like. In fact, the two visions, Beric enthroned on a weirwood throne and Beric not dead, bookend this extraordinary chapter. Other than the obvious benefits of the cave being, as Lem told Gendry, an old place, deep and secret, a refuge where neither wolves nor lions come prowling, we have to wonder why and how the Brotherhood came to choose it as one of their principal hideouts. Given their apparent connection with the ghost of High Heart and their occasional reliance upon her visions and connection with the old gods, it seems like the possibilities are that she might have directed them to that spot, or that perhaps Thoros was trying to tap into the magical properties inherent in such a mystical location, leveraging the power of the old gods to increase his own abilities with the fires of R'hllor, though as we'll see, it's not clear that would or should be possible. At any rate, make no mistake, while Beric will tell Sandor that all of the men gathered in the cave had been dubbed knights by his own blade, it will soon become clear that every one of them, including Harwin who had been raised in the north and had once revered the old gods as his forefathers had, had also become an adherent of the religion of the red god R'hllor. Thoros may have spent long, fruitless years as a mere oddity in King's Landing, the king's drinking buddy, and in his own words, a bad priest, utterly failing in his mission to make converts for his church. But now, as he tells Sandor, the Lord of Light has woken in my heart. Many powers long asleep are waking, and there are forces moving in the land. I have seen them in my flames. And the powers that R'hllor has bestowed upon him? reading the flames, and, as it turns out, acting as an instrument of resurrection, are enough to have made converts of the entire group, who engage in a prayer to the Red God shortly after the group arrive in the cave with the prisoners. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a bit. When Aya entered the cave and had her hood removed, she noted that it contained many people, and that it was big, Big as the fire was, it says, the cave was bigger. It was hard to tell where it began and where it ended. The tunnel mouse might have been two feet deep or gone on two miles. One of the people in the cave pointed out to Aya as the wizard was described as, quote, a tall thin man with oddments of old armour buckled on over his ratty pink robes. But Aya remembered Thoros of Mir from King's Landing and thinks that this man with a droopy face and a full head of shaggy grey hair couldn't possibly be the large, bald, red-robed priest she remembered. However, just when it seemed like the man identified as Thoros might speak to her, the mad huntsman brought his captive forward. 
From this point on, Arya became an observer to a scene that was part heroic tragedy, part courtroom drama. We learn how the hound was captured by the huntsman and his dogs, quote, sleeping off a drunk under a willow tree, and how Lem, Tom, and Greenbeard had faced down the huntsman at Stony Sept, demanding the prisoner be brought to Lord Berwick to face justice. Justice, then, is what this chapter will be about, and the dialogue, as Sandor is made to stand to account for all the wrongs of the Lannister army, is positively Shakespearean. When Sandor recognizes Thoros, incredulous to find the man he knew from Robert's court in this place, Thoros tells him about the things he'd seen in his flames. Given his background, this prompted a forceful reply, bugger your flames, and you as well. Lem, described as of a height with the near-giant Clegane, looked him in the eye and told him to watch his mouth, adding, we hold your life in our hands. Sandor's reply, best wipe the shit off your fingers then, is possibly overlooked for the power it had to open a window into the hound's psyche. Combined with the details that we last saw him deserting King's Landing during the inferno that was the Battle of the Blackwater, and that he was caught sleeping off a drunk in the relative open, his complete lack of fear as his self-affirmed shit life is threatened again and again by his captors might lead to the conclusion that he was a man who had lost anything he ever had, who had no hope and no direction, and who would just as soon die as continue on. But Sandor wasn't quite suicidal, just indifferent, which is a very different thing. Later, in another place, when Arya threatens to kill Sandor herself and his brother too, his reply will indicate that there is one thing that keeps him alive. It says, no, his dark eyes narrowed, that you won't. In A Feast for Crows, the elder brother of the Quiet Isle will tell Brienne of Tarth, where other men dream of love or wealth or glory, this man, Sander Clegane, dreamed of slaying his own brother, a sin so terrible it makes me shudder just to speak of it. Yet that was the bread that nourished him, the fuel that kept his fires burning. Ignoble as it was, the hope of seeing his brother's blood upon his blade was all this sad and angry creature lived for. Here in the cave, we see what happens when an angry man has only one thing to live for, he becomes indifferent to all other possibilities. But Sandor Clegane was possessed of a keen wit, and he listened carefully as the Brotherhood described their mission of justice for the realm and its dead, and his own place in that justice. Aya also listened carefully as Sandor was accused of every atrocity the folk gathered in the cave could attribute to lions, soldiers serving House Lannister. At every turn, the Hound denied responsibility. The dead of Shera and Mummer's Ford and dozens of other places were laid at his door. Dozens of names, quote, people great and small, young and old, good people and bad people who died on the points of Lannister spears or saw their bellies opened by Lannister swords, according to Lord Berwick, who had risen from his weirwood throne to join the discussion. Described as a scarecrow of a man, with a ragged black cloak speckled with stars and an iron breastplate dinted by a hundred battles. A thicket of red-gold hair hid most of his face, save for a bald spot above his left ear where his head had been smashed in. Beric mentioned that their original mission had been, quote, 
to bring the king's justice to your brother. When Thoros asserted their intentions of holding Sandor responsible for deaths caused by his brother, and many more, because he serves House Lannister, the Hound attempted to distance himself from his former masters. Once, me and thousands more. He also asked a question of his own. Is each of us guilty of the crimes of the others? And all the scorn he can muster goes into his own judgment of the entire institution of knighthood and chivalry. Might be you are knights after all. You lie like knights. Maybe you murder like knights. Asked to explain himself, Sandor's scathing assessment was brutally honest, as he is himself. Sandor Clegane had no more illusions about himself than he did about the whole rotten system of knighthood, an understanding born from the trauma of his childhood when his brutal brother disfigured his face and then went on to become a knight, the source of all a wounded boy's rage. As he told Sansa in A Game of Thrones, four years later they anointed him with the seven oils and he recited his knightly vows and Rhaegar Targaryen tapped him on the shoulder and said, Arise, Sir Gregor. Considering that in this very chapter, Thoros named Rhaegar's dead children as among the victims of violence Sandor should be held to account for, we can assume that particular irony wasn't lost on him. In fact, it likely fueled his anger even more. And so, when asked to explain himself, he did, in an epic statement that not only defined Sandor Clegane, but which sits squarely on the opposing side of a debate about knighthood that George carries on throughout his work with characters like Jamie Lannister and Barristan Selmy, Brienne of Tarth, Sir Duncan the Tall, and both Clegane brothers. Here, once again, is the passage. A knight's a sword with a horse. The rest, the vows and the sacred oils and the ladies' favours, they're silk ribbons tied round the sword. Maybe the sword's prettier with ribbons hanging off it, but it will kill you just as dead. Well, bugger your ribbons and shove your swords up your asses. I'm the same as you. The only difference is I don't lie about what I am. So kill me, but don't call me a murderer while you stand there telling each other that your shit don't stink. You hear me? However, the Hound's defense, as pertinent as it was to philosophical discussions of the nature of knighthood, to the accusations that had been made against him, and as an explanation of Sandor's worldview, didn't sit well with Arya Stark, who had spent many months praying for his death, quote, hundreds and hundreds of times, as she thinks. Overcome with anger, she charged forward to accuse the man of one more death, one that the Brotherhood had never considered— not even Harwin, who was likely present at Derry all those months ago. It says, You are a murderer, she screamed. You killed Micah. Don't say you never did. You murdered him. If the Brotherhood had hoped to keep Aya's identity a secret, Harwin's accidental outing of her at Acorn Hall notwithstanding, her accusation of Sandor Clegane dashed those hopes. After initially mistaking her for a boy, Sandor recognised her, which caused no small amount of amusement to him. It says he gave a bark of laughter and said, Seven hells, the little sister, the brat who tossed Joss' pretty sword in the river. Don't you know you're dead? And while Arya was sure that Sandor would soon be the dead one, this was the moment the seed was planted for the rest of Aya's A Storm of Swords arc. 
Sandor knew who she was and where she was, and perhaps most significantly, as he would shortly lose the fortune in gold he won at the hands tourney, which he'd been carrying around the Riverlands with him, he could guess her worth. A brief conversation ensued in which Beric asked Sandor to confirm or deny the accusation. Perhaps, to Beric's surprise, Sandor confirmed that, yes, he had killed Micah, stating, I was Joffrey's sworn shield. The butcher's boy attacked a prince of the blood. There are a couple of elements to that statement to untangle. First, that the law does indeed decree punishment to anyone who laid hands upon a royal prince. We saw the same principle in action in the Hedge Knight when Baylor Targaryen told Duncan the Tall, You laid hands upon the blood of the dragon. For that offense, you must be tried and judged and punished. Second is that Sandor's casual admission, coupled with the defense of I was only following orders, is one of the oldest justifications for atrocities committed by armed men on record. As it happens, it's also a strong element of Sandor's self-loathing, as we'll see shortly. While Micah was never granted a trial, as Sir Duncan was, Sandor's side of the story makes it plain that the accusation from Prince Joffrey and from Arya's own sister Sansa this one's own sister told the same tale when she stood before your precious Robert, had made the case open and shut. Micah was judged guilty in absentia and sentenced to death. Unnoticed and unmentioned was the fact that Aya boldly confessed to the crime of striking Joffrey herself. It was me. I hit Joffrey and threw lion's paw in the river and that it was she who might have been accused as Micah was and found guilty in absentia, if not for her sister agreeing with Joffrey's face-saving version of events that initially placed the blame squarely on the older male child. Faced with two versions of the story, Beric and Thoros conferred, and then Beric announced the decision. You stand accused of murder, but no one here knows the truth or falsehood of the charge, so it is not for us to judge you. Only the Lord of Light may do that now. I sentence you to a trial by battle. In Westeros, a traditional trial by battle was done in the light of the Seven, with all the trappings of the faith, chivalry, and knighthood. Here it would be performed in the firelit dark, Sander Clegane versus the Lightning Lord, with the gathered brotherhood as witnesses before their god, the Lord of Light. The two men were armed with swords and shields, and Thoros led the group in a prayer to R'hllor. When the prayer concluded, the trial would begin. Here's the passage. For the night is dark, they chanted, Harwin and Angai, loud as all the rest, and full of terrors. This cave is dark too, said the hound, but I'm the terror here. I hope your god's a sweet one, Dondarrion. You're going to meet him shortly. Unsmiling, Lord Beric laid the edge of his longsword against the palm of his left hand and drew it slowly down. Blood ran dark from the gash he made and washed over the steel. And then the sword took fire. It's probably impossible to overstate the effect that open flames have upon Sandor Clegane. In A Storm of Swords, he told Sansa, quote, Only cowards fight with fire and she observed the remnants of his fear when he came to her chamber during the Battle of Blackwater. Tyrion observed it as well, shocked by Clegane's refusal to lead another sortie toward the inferno that was the river and riverside. He thought, he is afraid. The hound is frightened. 
In fact, fire may well be the only thing that had any power to frighten the hound. In this very chapter, when Sandor recognized Thoros, the red priest commented, In melees you'd curse my flaming sword, though thrice I overthrew you with it. That in itself is telling as to fire's effect on him, since Arya thought that the hound was deadly with a sword. Everyone knew that. In spite of her own fears, though, Arya found herself taking some comfort from the many stories she had heard about Beric Dondarrion. It says, he can't be killed, she thought, hoping against hope. And so, as the two men faced off, Arya found herself believing that Beric would prevail. As Sandor was driven back almost into the flames of the fire pit, not once but twice, Aya thought, he is going to lose. He is, he is, he's going to die. George actually uses the word exultant to describe her mood as Clegane, his shield now ablaze from repeated strikes by Beric's flaming sword, staggered and went to one knee. Here's a description of Sandor as the Brotherhood and Aya roared their approval. Finish him. Guilty, guilty, kill him, guilty. It says, Not until Lord Beric retreated apace did the hound seem to realise that the fire that roared so near his face was his own shield burning. With a shout of revulsion, he hacked down savagely on the broken oak, completing its destruction. The shield shattered, one piece of it spinning away, still afire, while the other clung stubbornly to his forearm. His efforts to free himself only fanned the flames. His sleeve caught, and now his whole left arm was ablaze. If fire was the one thing that Sander Clegane was afraid of, his fear didn't cow him. Rather, it enraged him. When he stumbled into the fire pit, he screamed at Beric, "'Bloody bastard!' And when his arm caught fire and the searing pain he must have remembered so clearly from his childhood took over his senses, he surged forward in one last desperate attempt to rid himself of both his opponent and the fire that seemed to be acting as his ally. Sander brought a two-handed cut with his entire body weight behind it down towards Beric's unprotected neck and shoulder. Perhaps due to the berserker nature of Sandor's charge, Beric saw it coming and blocked it, quote, easily that is, until his own sword snapped in two, allowing the hound's sword to cut him clean down to the breastbone. Back at Acorn Hall, when Gendry told Aya that he knew Thoros from King's Landing, when he used to come to Tobo Mott's shop, he said Master Mott would scold him about his flaming swords. It was no way to treat good steel, he'd say. Thoros would later agree, and Beric would add, flames consume. But while Thoros used his flaming sword as a scare tactic, almost a gimmick, Beric's flames had been something else entirely. Not wildfire, such as Thoros had once used, and as Stannis' sword Lightbringer had been treated when it was revealed on Dragonstone, nor a glamour such as we see on Lightbringer at the Wall in A Dance with Dragons, but actual red flames that appeared to be summoned by blood magic. But flame is flame, and other than Melisandre's glamour, there's probably no way in which a flaming sword made of conventional materials won't be damaged and eventually break, as Master Mott was inferring when he deplored Thoros's tricks. 
In the aftermath, as Beric lay in the dirt in a pool of his own blood, apparently dead, and Sander Clegane rolled in the same dirt to extinguish his burning arm and whimpered from the pain, it says, Arya could only think of Micah and all the stupid prayers she'd prayed for the Hound to die. If they were gods, why didn't Lord Beric win? She knew the Hound was guilty. For Arya, there was no religious philosophy, no extenuating circumstances that could overcome her hatred of Sandor. But to her astonishment, he was there in front of her, crying in pain, and for perhaps the first time, she saw him briefly as a human, rather than as a murderer and an object of her hatred. While she was a long way yet from the pity that her sister Sansa felt for the wounded and tormented man, that moment seemed significant somehow. Not that her anger and hate lessened in that instant. When the huntsman suggested they return the hound to the crow cages at Stony Sept, Arya agreed, saying, He murdered Micah, he did. Though Greenbeard and Harwin tried to explain that Sandor had been judged innocent by their god, Arya was beyond listening. Grabbing Greenbeard's dagger, she lunged in the direction of the hound, where he was being helped up by Thomas Evans and one of the women. It says, The sight of his arm shocked her speechless. There was a strip of pink where the leather strap had clung, but above and below the flesh was cracked and red and bleeding from elbow to wrist. Clegane tried to stand, but as he moved, a piece of burned flesh sloughed right off his arm, and his knees went out from under him. If possible, in the midst of his agony, Sanders seemed amused by her threats. His mouth was described as twitching when he spoke, a characteristic often attributed to him on account of his facial burns, but also one that's frequently connected to amusement and his peculiar brand of dark, wry humor. He told Arya, You want me dead that bad? Then do it, wolf girl. Shove it in. It's cleaner than fire. Still transfixed by his terrible burns, Arya paused, another humanizing moment that she swiftly overcame, thinking, But he was the hound. He deserved to burn in a fiery hell. And so she said it out loud. You killed Micah. Tell them. You did. You did. And then came the display of self-loathing we mentioned earlier, as Sandor confessed three things to Aya all at once. It says, I did. His whole face twisted. I rode him down and cut him in half and laughed. I watched them beat your sister bloody too, watched them cut your father's head off. Now, while we can argue that Sandor was clearly guilty of Micah's death, and that his earlier defence was irrelevant, in this passage it seems very clear that he is disgusted, not just by his own actions, but by being a bystander to other horrors. Earlier in this chapter, after he mocked the Brotherhood as brave companions, he had scorned Lem for drawing his sword in anger. He is a brave man, bearing steel on a bound captive. So we wonder how much scorn he must have directed at himself for killing an unarmed child and enjoying it, and for being a bystander as a young girl was beaten by fellow knights for his king's amusement, and to the dishonourable execution of a man who had been promised mercy. If nothing else, Sandor Clegane has a code, and in some lights it looks a lot like honour. But Arya wasn't quite seeing through his confession on that level yet. 
His words served to enrage her further, as they were surely designed to do, and any impulse towards pity evaporated as she screamed, "'You go to hell, hound! You just go to hell!' But, ever the master of the dramatic chapter ending, this was the moment George chose to reveal that the rumors about Beric Dondarrion were not just rumors, but instead spoke to a horrifying and inexplicable reality." The chapter ends with the Lightning Lord, last seen just moments earlier, bleeding out in the dirt before several of his men carried his body off into the recesses of the cave, standing behind Arya and replying to her rage-filled curse with two simple and entirely accurate words, he has. And so, up next, we'll delve into what happened with the Hound and where the Brotherhood are headed, as the weather takes a turn for the gloomy and menacing, descriptions of which will dominate both Arya's and her mother's upcoming chapters, as they both move around the Riverlands. The eastern horizon glowed gold and pink, and overhead a half-moon peeked out through low, scuttling clouds. The wind blew cold, and Arya could hear the rush of water and the creak of the mill's great wooden waterwheel. There was a smell of rain in the dawn air, but no drops were falling yet. Flaming arrows flew through the morning mists, trailing pale ribbons of fire and thudded into the wooden walls of the septry. A few smashed through shuttered windows, and soon enough... Thin tendrils of smoke were rising between the broken shutters. Starting in Aya 7, rain becomes a visceral element in both Aya's and Catelyn's chapters. Interestingly, the weather isn't described in the same ways in the chapters of the only other POV character who experiences the same time and place, Jamie Lannister. Not that it never rains in his chapters, but the rain itself doesn't become part of the plot. In the second half of A Storm of Swords, the weather in Arya and Catelyn's chapters seems to take on a life of its own and is frequently described by the author using a literary device called Pathetic Fallacy. This is when human emotions or motivations are attributed to inanimate or non-living objects. And in these chapters of A Storm of Swords, the weather is described so often in these terms that it almost seems to become an independent character. And speaking of characters, Sander Clegane had been carrying the remains of his winnings from the hands tourney well over a year ago when he was captured in the Riverlands. The purse had been 40,000 gold dragons, which coincidentally was mirrored by the winnings of two members of the current Brotherhood Without Banners, Angai and Thoros, who won 20,000 dragons each for winning the archery contest and the melee, respectively. Angai mentions that he'd spent his on basically wine, women, and song before he left the capital, and Thoros, we can only assume, had long since donated whatever might have remained from his own winnings to the Brotherhood's cause. We don't know what Sandor might have spent his winnings on, other than possibly his black courser stranger, but it's very likely he still had thousands of gold dragons in his saddlebags. Having been marked innocent by R'hllor and relieved of his gold, the Brotherhood had bandaged him and returned his horse, armour and weapons and sent him on his way to Arya's, quote, disgust. The Brotherhood, in turn, left the cave, apparently at last heading towards Riverrun to return Arya to her family and collect a ransom. 
But as she'd learned, the group rarely go anywhere in a straight line, and so Aya's next chapter opens with them surrounding a small religious community that had been occupied by the Bloody Mummers. As Arya and Gendry observed from a nearby hill, the Brotherhood made short work of the Mummers, who were soon forced from the wooden sceptre they were sheltering in by a few well-placed flaming arrows. While the Bloody Mummers hadn't made their way into Arya's prayers, her time at Harrenhal had taught her to hate and fear them nonetheless, and as she watched the battle unfold, her thoughts were just as bloodthirsty as they had been during Beric and Sandor's duel. Kill them all. Kill every single one. The battle at the Burning Sceptre once again symbolically proved the Brotherhood's devotion to their fiery god, with fire arrows setting wooden structures alight and both Thoros and Beric fighting with blazing swords. As battles go, it was short, with most of the mummers soon dead or captured, but for two Beric allowed to escape, saying, let them carry the word back to Harrenhal. It will give the leech lord and his goat a few more sleepless nights. With the enemy routed and the Brown brothers, who had been captive in their own house, rescued, Beric issued another order. Give the dying the gift of mercy and bind the others hand and foot for trial. And so we get to see firsthand one of Lord Beric's trials. It says, The trials went swiftly. Various of the outlaws came forward to tell of things the brave companions had done. Towns and villages sacked, crops burned, women murdered, men maimed and tortured. A few spoke of the boys that Septon Utz had carried off. Each was stripped and bound and hanged in turn. Tom, seven strings, played a dirge for them on his wood harp, and Thoros implored the Lord of Light to roast their souls until the end of time. Among the executed captives was Septon Ut, whom Arya knew from Harrenhal. Though he was a paedophile and apparent serial killer of young boys, he'd apparently not frightened Arya as much as other members of their company, like Rorge and Biter, but it does say, quote, she was glad he was dead all the same. Still unhappy over Sandor's acquittal and release, Arya tried to take comfort in the executions of the mummers, observing the dead bodies swinging from what she termed a mummer tree with some satisfaction. The Brown brothers told their rescuers how their community had first been sacked by Lannister soldiers, then by countless other visitors, including a monster whose company sounds a lot like the mountain in the tickler, and finally by Ut and the men with him. All, unfortunately, highly relatable experiences for Arya. As the group sheltered for the night in one of the surviving outbuildings of the little community, Arya had a chance to observe Beric Dondarrion. She noted that he never ate and didn't appear to sleep, and that he was marked by a number of terrible wounds that lined up with all the stories she had heard about his many deaths, a missing eye courtesy of Gregor Clegane, a crushed skull from being struck with a mace by Sir Burton Craighall, and a black ring around his neck from being hung by Amory Lorch, while his chipped and dented breastplate hid the scars from Gregor's lance to his chest and Sandor's sword in his neck. As she watched him and wondered, remembering all those stories about Beric being killed by Lannister allies, it says, Lord Beric seemed to sense her attention. He turned his head and beckoned her closer. Do I frighten you, child? When Arya confessed her curiosity about his miraculous recovery in the cave where she thought Sandor had killed him, 
Lem pronounced that there had never been a better healer than Thoros. Beric reacted strangely to that statement, agreeing with Lem but then sending him away before replying to Arya, even brave men blind themselves sometimes when they're afraid to see, and then asking Thoros, how many times have you brought me back now? Although Thoros declared that he was only an instrument of Relore, the answer, when Beric demanded it again, was six. Six deaths, six resurrections, though Thoros also begged his lord to be more cautious, saying that each time it got more difficult, and that, quote, a seventh death might mean the end of both of us. Her suspicions confirmed, Arya then asked Thoros the question that must have been forming in her mind since she witnessed Beric's remarkable recovery in the cave. Could you bring back a man without a head? Just the once, not six times, could you? Ned Stark had been dead for many months by this time, and unbeknownst to Arya, his bones had been returned to her mother at Riverrun, and then sent on northwards accompanied by Cat's sworn shield, Hal Mollen. The request not only eerily foreshadowed Thoros and Beric's relationship with the resurrection of Arya's other parent, but was simultaneously naive and heartbreaking. Thoros was at pains to explain how the fiery kiss worked, and that he could do nothing without the will of his god, who seemed very focused on keeping Beric alive, but Arya understood that his patient explanation boiled down to a simple answer. No. Beric, though, was sympathetic and took time to explain his respect for Ned and the Brotherhood's position on what to do with Arya, saying, Your father was a good man. Harwin has told me much of him. For his sake, I would gladly forego your ransom, but we need the gold too desperately. Arya recalled how Beric had given all of Sander Clegane's gold to Greenbeard and sent him south for supplies for the impending winter, saying, The small folk need grain and seed, and we need blades and horses. Too many of my men ride roundsies, drays, and mules against foes mounted on coursers and destriers. The problem was, Arya didn't feel valuable. Finally giving voice to secret thoughts that had been on her mind since Harrenhal, she asked Beric what he would do if Rob declined to pay her ransom, telling him, My hair's messy, and my nails are dirty, and my feet are all hard. I ruined that gown Lady Smallwood gave me, and I don't sew so good. She chewed her lip. I don't sew very well, I mean. Septimordain used to say I had a blacksmith's hands. The fear that Rob and her mother would find out about, quote, the things she'd done, the stable boy and the guard at Harrenhal and all, in other words, all the people she had killed, remained secret and unspoken. A bemused Beric promised that if she was rejected by her family, he would send her somewhere safe, to Lady Smallwood or to his own home at Blackhaven. But he was sure, as was Thoros, that Rob would pay. To that end, Beric promised Arya, on my honour as a knight, to quote, see that you are returned safely to your mother's arms. It was Arya who made him swear, remembering Euron's unfulfilled promise of home and safety, and she seemed, for the moment, content with his answer. Lem had returned from checking on the sentries, complaining about the rain, and Thomas Evans was playing a series of songs about rain and a few of the other men were playing at dice when Merritt, one of the Brotherhood, complained about his horse losing a shoe. 
Gendry, even if he hadn't heard the latest conversation about Arya being returned to her family, was surely aware that the group's destination was River Run and Ransom for Arya. He suddenly spoke up, offering to shoe the horse, adding, I was only apprenticed, but my master said my hand was made to hold a hammer. I could shoe horses, close up rents and mail, and beat the dents from plate. I bet I could make swords, too. The prospect of Aya rejoining her family would have almost certainly left Gendry adrift. They had been together the better part of a year, through trauma, imprisonment, escape and more. Where Aya had recently thought that Gendry was her only true friend, we can only assume he may have felt the same way about her. In that moment, he was likely attempting to secure a position for himself, anticipating that Aya would soon be leaving him. But Aya, not yet skilled at seeing things from someone else's perspective, could only listen to his offer and his follow-up explanation with dismay. When Gendry asserted his desire to smith for the Brotherhood, she thought, he means to leave me too. And so Gendry was accepted into the Brotherhood without banners and knighted by Lord Berwick then and there. But as Berwick spoke the words, it says, From the door came rough, rasping laughter. Sandor Clegane had returned. Sandor was hardly a welcome visitor, nor were his demands. He wanted his gold returned and demanded it with all of his characteristic threats and bravado. Covered by several archers, Sander's threats had to be limited to just that, a verbal assault of scorn and anger and some amount of amusement at finding Lord Beric making a knight from an apprentice smith. He saw Arya and wondered if Beric might knight her too, the first eight-year-old knight? Arya replied to that with as much bravado as Sander himself might have done, lying about her age. I'm twelve, she continued. I could be a knight if I wanted. I could have killed you, too. Only Lem took my knife. Sander dismissed her threat with one of his own. Complain to Lem, not me. Then tuck your tail between your legs and run. Do you know what dogs do to wolves? And Arya sallied forth once more. Next time I will kill you. I'll kill your brother, too. We mentioned earlier how Sandor's response to that particular threat indicated just how much he himself looked forward to killing Gregor, a growing theme that at this point was only just beginning to make itself known. A few more words were exchanged between the Hound on Thoros and Lem, with Sandor calling the Brotherhood common thieves and Lem replying, your lion friends ride into some village, take all the food and every coin they find, and call it foraging. The wolves as well, so why not us? No one robbed you, dog. You just been good and foraged. But it was obvious there would be no gold changing hands, so Clegane left as suddenly as he had appeared. While the others discussed their unwelcome visitor and how he had come by the gold he so desperately wanted back, Thoros grew philosophical, and his evaluation came very close to the mark. The hound has lost more than a few bags of coin, he mused. He's lost his master and kennel as well. He cannot go back to the Lannisters. The young wolf would never have him, nor would his brother be like to welcome him. That gold was all he had left, it seems to me. What Thoros might be missing is what the gold symbolized to Sander Clegane. 
His victory at the hands tourney came after he defended Loras Tyrell against his brother Gregor, possibly the first time Sandor had stood forth against Gregor's cruelty, and certainly the first time he had been rewarded for doing so. When Loras declined to face Sandor in the final tilt, handing him the victory as his thanks for saving his life, it says he took the victory and the champion's purse and, perhaps for the first time in his life, the love of the commons. For someone like Sandor, gruff, disfigured, overshadowed by his monstrous brother, and frequently assumed to be guilty by association with Gregor, as we saw just recently, we probably cannot emphasize enough what that moment meant to him. And so the Brotherhood took not only his gold, but the very real symbol of the time he actually acted like a knight, defending someone who could not defend themselves, rather than being a bystander to or active participant in cruelty which, as we saw earlier, inspired extreme self-loathing. The Lord of Light is not yet done with Joffrey's Hound, it would seem, but that doesn't go far enough for Arya, who falls asleep holding Jacken's coin, remembering, quote, how she'd been the ghost in Harrenhal. She could kill with a whisper then. Sometime later, she awoke to the sound of wolves howling and hoped they would kill Sandor where her companions had failed. I hope they eat the hound, it says she thought, followed by she remembered what he'd said about wolves and dogs. The next day, under clear skies, the group returned to High Heart. Arriving in the late afternoon, it says, Arya walked around the circle of weirwood stumps with Lord Beric's squire Ned, and they stood on top of one, watching the last light fade in the west. From up here, she could see a storm raging to the north, but High Heart stood above the rain. It wasn't above the wind, though. The gusts were blowing so strongly that it felt like someone was behind her, yanking on her cloak. The rain may have held off during the day as they traveled, but it was still present and continued to be described by the author using pathetic fallacy. In this case, the storm may have been raging in the distance, but it still threatened the group who had come to this hill seeking not safety, but advice. They built a bonfire at the top of the hill, and Thoros sat before it, gazing into the flames. Aya asked Ned what he hoped to see there, and got the response... The past, the future, things happening far away. Gendry, also curious, asked Thoros himself, just as he turned away from the flames, if it were true that he saw the future in the flames. Not here, not now, but some days, yes, the Lord of Light grants me visions, was Thoros's reply, hinting that he knew that here where the old gods held sway, his own god had little power, something that the tiny old woman known as the ghost would shortly confirm, but which that other practitioner of R'hllor we know so well, Melisandre of Ashai, would never admit to, since acknowledging the power of the other gods over R'hllor would be tantamount to admitting that she was wrong about his power as the one true god. Later that night, the wind is described as howling almost like a wolf, and as usual, there were actual wolves in the area as well, quote, off to the west, giving it lessons. In that storm, Arya noticed a small pale shape slip into their camp. It was the ghost, and Arya once again snuck forward to see her join Thoros, Lem, and Beric at the fire, and demand a skin of wine and a song in exchange for her news. Technically, she first sought a kiss from Lem, whom she called the Lemon, 
but when he was less than receptive, she agreed a song from Thomas Evans would do. And the news she started with certainly got everyone's attention. The king is dead, she declared. And when pressed, she clarified that it was the Kraken King, Balon Greyjoy, who was dead. Opening in this way tells us on a reread that one of her previous visions, that of the man without a face on a bridge that swayed and swung, had been a true vision since we eventually learn the manner of Balon's death. The ghost reminds the men that I dreamt him dead and he died, as if to underline the value of her news. She adds a couple of other items that are more news than prophecy, that Hostetully is dead and that, quote, in the Hall of Kings, the goat sits alone and fevered as the great dog descends on him. Arya was confused by the great dog, uncertain if it referred to the mountain or to his younger brother. Readers know that Vargo Hote's fever was caused by a human bite from Brienne of Tarth, and that Roose Bolton had abandoned him at Harrenhal to face the Lannisters, personified by Gregor Clegane, alone. In any case, Arya got distracted for a moment thinking about all the men on her list who belonged to Gregor, and hoping that Beric would hang them as he had done with the Mummers. When she returned her attention to the ghost, she was saying, I dreamt a wolf howling in the rain, but no one heard his grief. I dreamt such a clangor I thought my head might burst, drums and horns and pipes and screams, but the saddest sound was the little bells. I dreamt a maid at a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs, and later I dreamt that maid again, slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. This was prophecy, apparently collected from a series of dreams, and it all relates to Aya. There's grey wind howling, and the chaos of music and slaughter at the Red Wedding, right down to Jingle Bell Frey's Little Belled Cap. There's Sansa at the Purple Wedding, and again much later doing something that many fans think is killing Peter Baelish at Winterfell. And since it all affects Arya watching from the shadows, it was probably no surprise that the old woman suddenly sensed the extra person listening to her tale. It says she turned and looked right at her and invited her to come closer. And so Arya did, though she was frightened and held herself ready to flee at any moment. The little woman looked closely at Arya and suddenly began to cry, saying... I see you, wolf child, blood child. I thought it was the Lord who smelled of death. You are cruel to come to my hill, cruel. I gorged on grief at Summer Hall. I need none of yours. Be gone from here, dark heart, be gone. Arya noted the fear in the woman's voice and was startled, and the men hastened to reassure the woman that she was just a little girl and that they were taking her to her mother the next day. But there's a lot to unpack from the ghost's impassioned words. First is the fact that she references Summerhall. It will be later in the timeline of the books before we learn more about Summerhall and the little woman's possible connection to it from Barristan Selmy, though her reference in this chapter to My Jenny's Song is exactly what ties her to the stories of Jenny of Oldstones, Prince Duncan, and the tragedy at Summerhall. With her doomed family, it would seem that Arya had, or would soon have, much in common with Jenny and the ghost. Therefore, the woman's declaration, I gorged on grief, I need none of yours. 
So while epithets like Bloodchild and Darkheart may refer to Arya's future as an assassin, or even to her present with her kill list and a fervent wish to see everyone on it dead, to the point that in the last chapter she was daydreaming of what they would all look like dead, it's possible the woman mainly recoiled from the deep well of grief she could sense in the girl who had lost everything, including her very identity. We also want to add that on top of deaths that Arya might be mourning and deaths that she had caused or would one day cause on her own, there are many deaths and associated misery that can be laid at her feet on account of the fact that she unwittingly, not once but twice, saved Roj and Biter from almost certain death. Assuming that the woman can sense the entire swirl of tragedy that Aya is connected to, her sudden rejection of the girl she had only just summoned forward makes sense. When Beric mentioned going to Riverrun, the woman went back into news mode, telling him, The black fish holds the rivers now. If it's the mother you want, seek her at the twins, for there's to be a wedding. She goes on to challenge Thoros to confirm everything she was saying in his flames, though there's a caveat. Not now, though, not here. You'll see nothing here. This place belongs to the old gods still. They linger here as I do, shrunken and feeble, but not yet dead. Nor do they love the flames, for the oak recalls the acorn. The acorn dreams the oak. The stump lives in them both. And they remember when the first men came with fire in their fists. And so what Thoros had hinted earlier is confirmed. R'hllor had no place on that hill which belonged to the old gods. But the woman's words tell us something about the old gods. Up until now, they were often referred to as the gods of the trees, certainly connected to the weirwoods, but implied to be separate somehow. The statement about High Heart, though, directly equates the gods with the trees. They linger here, nor do they love the flames, and they remember when the first men came. The gods apparently are the trees, a subtle difference that's confirmed later in Bran's arc, but is first introduced here in Ayers. In addition, note that the woman mentions when the first men came with fire in their fists. This is in keeping with the theme of Arya learning about the greyness of the world. In previous chapters, she learned that not all Northmen were good and that even amongst people she trusted, motivations could be complicated. Now, a deep dive into history raises another unpleasant specter, that of the first First Men slaughtering children of the forest and destroying their gods with axe and flame. For a child who identified so closely with the North and with the symbols of Northern culture, wolves, weirwoods, old gods, etc., that's a detail that must raise more questions than it answered, and it could only contribute to the anxiety of discovering that nothing in the world was as she had been raised to expect it to be. And that was the end of the Ghost News and Prophecy Hour, as she then demanded her payment. Tom was roused from sleep to play her Jenny song, and Aya and the others left them to it. That night, the rains came back, the storm that had been threatening during the evening, unleashing lightning and thunder and rain that, quote, fell in blinding sheets. It was still raining the next day when the group decided to make their way to a nearby abandoned village to seek shelter. And as they rode, Aya spoke 
with Berwick's Dorney Squire, a lad called Ned, whom she had yet to get to know well, though he was more or less of an age with her. Ned, according to Arya, was a bit shy, though good-natured. He was suffering from a chill due to the weather, and so Arya had decided to talk to him to take his mind off things. She began by asking him the usual questions. How long had he been with Beric? What was it like being in battles? Etc. Ned told her that Beric was promised to his aunt, and that he had been Beric's page and then squire since he was seven, about five years ago. He had been in battles, including at Mummer's Ford, the first time Beric was killed, but he didn't seem to relish it. When Arya asked if he'd ever killed anyone, Ned responded with surprise, I'm only twelve. Arya's unspoken thought, I killed the boy when I was eight, is very similar to something she witnessed the Hound say to Roger Cassell back in the training yard at Winterfell, I killed the man at twelve. It's not the first time we've noted similar personality traits between Arya and Sandor, and likely it won't be the last. Perhaps it was the words the ghost had spoken to her at High Heart, or just the memory of the first person she had killed, but suddenly Arya found herself remembering the stable boy, the battle at the Holdfast by the lake, the guard at Harrenhal. She wasn't sure if Wheeze, Chiswick, and the victims of the Weasel Soup counted, but it says, all of a sudden, she felt very sad. And so she changed the subject. My father was called Ned too. And then Ned started to tell her that yes, he knew about her father and had in fact seen him in King's Landing. He'd also seen Sansa, though Aya's comment about Jane Poole being in love with Beric led him to mention his aunt again, which seemed to make the boy uncomfortable. Arya realised that it was probably Beric's death that made him feel that way, but didn't know what to say. This time, it was Ned who changed the subject, suddenly asking her about her half-brother, Jon Snow. Thinking about Jon made Arya sad again, but she was curious how Ned knew about him. And so the boy told her how he and Jon Snow were milk brothers. His family's wet nurse, he said, a woman called Wyla, was Jon's mother. Wyla was mentioned one other time by Robert to Ned in A Game of Thrones, and Ned quickly ended that conversation. But Arya had never heard the name, nor the term Milk Brother, and so she was confused. Her response to Ned was typical Arya. John never knew his mother, not even her name. You know her? Truly? If you lie, I'll punch your face. It was at this point that Ned said something that was even more astonishing than the things he had already told. He swore by the honour of his house that he was telling the truth, and Arya demanded to know what house he was from. Ned then revealed that his name was actually Edric, and that he was in fact Edric Dane, Lord of Starfall. At this point, Arya was alternating between being rude to Gendry on one side of her and being polite and courteous to Ned. Trying to salvage the conversation, she mentioned that she had heard of Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning. Arthur, Ned told her, was his uncle, his father's younger brother. And as though it was somehow related, he added, Lady Ashara was my aunt. I never knew her, though. She threw herself into the sea from atop the pale stone sword before I was born. Unbeknownst to Arya, Ashara's death was related to Arthur in that her death came shortly after her brother's at the hands of Ned Stark and Helen Reed. But when a startled Arya asked Ned to explain what he meant, 
He stumbled into an explanation that involved Ashara and Ned falling in love at the tourney of Harrenhal, and that strongly implied that she jumped because Ned broke her heart. The story really doesn't sync with the one he had just told her about Jon Snow and Wyla, but Arya was too upset at what appeared to be an implied stain on her father's honor to realize that. Instead, she stormed off, leaving Ned apologizing and trotted ahead to ride with Angai. When he didn't make her feel any better, she left the trail on her own. Harwin, who had heard this tale himself many years before at Winterfell, caught her up quickly and tried to explain to her using logic. Ned and Ashara met before he was ever pledged to marry Catelyn Stark, and there was no harm in whatever happened at Harrenhal. He clarified that Ashara's suicide came right after her brother Arthur's death and begged Arya not to mention any of it to her mother when they got to Riverrun. And then they arrived at the village they had been seeking. It was Notch, one of the local members of the Brotherhood, quote, a stooped, thin, grey-haired man born in these parts, who had led them to this village. He told them it was Lord Goodbrook's village and that Goodbrook had stayed loyal to the king when Riverrun declared for Robert during Robert's rebellion. Consequently, Lord Hoster had come to the village with fire and sword and it had been ruined and deserted ever since. Notch added, After the trident, Goodbrook's sons made his peace with Robert and Lord Hoster, but that didn't help the dead none. As when they had been at Stony Sept and Sally Dance, Arya noticed Gendry looking at her with a queer look, and we have one more uncomfortable moment of Arya learning that the world and the people in it are all shades of grey. Much as her sister Sansa was learning the truth of what Peter Baelish had told her in A Game of Thrones, life is not a song, sweetling, someday you may learn that to your sorrow, Arya spent much of her time with the Brotherhood learning that many of her preconceptions about the nature of people both good and bad, were in need of adjustment. As the group made camp in the abandoned village, Thoros made a fire and sat before it, staring intently into the flames, seeking a vision of Riverrun, while Tom O'Sevens mentioned all the reasons he didn't want to go to Riverrun. Then Thoros stood up saying, Lannisters, roaring red and gold, and went to talk with Beric, joined by Lem and Tom. Before too long, the men summoned Arya over to hear Thoros's news. It says, The Red Priest squatted down beside her. My lady, he said, the Lord granted me a view of Riverrun, an island in the sea of fire, it seemed. The flames were leaping lions with long crimson claws, and how they roared. A sea of Lannisters, my lady. Riverrun will soon come under attack. Arya started to talk about how Rob would beat them. He always did, but Thoros reminded her that the ghost had said Rob and Catelyn would not be found there and were perhaps going to the twins' seat of house Frey for a wedding. Arya was instantly furious, turning on Lem and Tom to say, If you hadn't caught me, I would have been there. I would have been home. And when Beric asked her if her great-uncle Brynden Tully would know her, she had to admit that no, he probably would not. Lem was all for trying anyway, but Beric was more cautious, suggesting that the group return to Acorn Hall while they sent out scouts to the Inn of the Kneeling Man, Lord Vance's maester, and more to discover the lay of the land. Arya was having none of this. It says she wanted Riverrun, not Acorn Hall. She wanted her mother and her brother Rob, not Lady Smallwood or some uncle she never knew. And so she dashed away from the men, slipped from Harwin's grasp, and made for the door. 
It was still storming outside, as it had been off and on for days. She ran from the Brotherhood and what she thought of as their hollow words and broken promises. As she ran, she berated herself for being caught, for taking Gendry and Hot Pie with her when she escaped Harrenhal, and for ever trusting anyone to help her. And when she slowed down, soaked to the bone from the drenching rain, seeking shelter near one of those ruined houses in the village, it says she, quote, almost bowled right into one of the sentries. When the man grabbed her arm, she cried out and said she'd go back, but the man holding her arm wasn't a sentry. It was Sandor Clegane, who laughed and said, Back? Bugger that, wolf girl. You're mine. The Hound had seen her value as easily as the Brotherhood had, and Aya had repeatedly reminded him of her presence with the group, even as he revealed his own desperate need for gold. Catching a golden squirrel must have been a no-brainer for Sandor Clegane, and as he dragged her onto his horse and carried her away into the storm, it says all that Aya could think of was the question he had asked her. Do you know what dogs do to wolves? And so, in our final segment, we'll cover Arya's chapters as she traverses the Riverlands with an uncertain destination once again, this time in the custody of the man who stood at the top of her list of names and the one she had the most reason to hate. Up next, Arya and the Hound. The rain was falling from a black iron sky, pricking the green and brown torrent with 10,000 swords, the tops of half a hundred trees poked up out of the swirling waters, their limbs clutching for the sky like the arms of drowning men. Thick mats of sodden leaves choked the shoreline, and farther out in the channel, she glimpsed something pale and swollen, a deer, or perhaps a dead horse, moving swiftly downstream. There was a sound, too, a low rumble at the edge of hearing, like the sound a dog makes just before he growls. After days of riding through the desolate and rainy riverlands, Aya and Sandor arrived at a river. It says it could not have been much past noon, but the sky was dark as dusk. They had not seen the sun in more days than she could count. The river was huge and in flood, and although Aya didn't remember the Blackwater Rush being so wide, she was sure that Sandor was taking her to King's Landing. Although the hound merely told her, it's a river we need to cross, that's all you need to know, she was convinced they had been travelling south. Sandor was Joffrey's dog after all, and to her mind the logical course of action would be for him to bring her directly to his employers. During the days since he took her from Lord Goodbrook's village, Arya had resisted and fought against her captivity, hitting, cursing, screaming, biting, and even trying to run away. Each time the hound had given her a choice. Behave herself, which meant riding quietly in front of him in the saddle atop the great horse stranger, or be gagged, tied up, and carried like a sow for slaughter. Once she had tried to steal the horse while the hound relieved himself, but stranger almost bit her face off, and Sander didn't have to warn her not to try that again. The time she tried to smash his head with a rock after she thought he'd fallen asleep, it says, His eyes opened. His mouth twitched, and he took the rock away from her as if she were a baby. The best she could do was kick him. 
I'll give you that one, he said, when he flung the rock into the bushes. But if you're stupid enough to try again, I'll hurt you. When she screamed at him about Micah, he threatened further violence. The next time you say that name, I'll beat you so bad you'll wish I'd killed you. After that, Arya rode quietly and slept at night rolled up in a horse blanket, tied top and bottom so she couldn't attempt escape or worse. The flooding river obviously couldn't be forded, and so Sandor said they would make for Lord Haraway's town, unbeknownst to Arya, located on the banks of the Trident, not far from Harrenhal. During her time with the Brotherhood, Arya had been circling the central riverlands, an area bordered by the Red Fork to the north and west, the Blackwater Rush to the south, and the God's Eye to the east, but little did she realise this was the first time she had returned so close to Harrenhal where she had begun. At Haraway, Sandor hoped to find a ferry, and though the town itself was flooded when they arrived, they did find a ferry there, tied up to a drowned stone tower house and manned by over a dozen men. The ferryman wanted gold to take them across, and Sandor negotiated with his sword, gold on the north bank or steel on the south. The man asked how he could know Sandor was good for the promised payment, and Arya's inner thoughts are revealing. It says, he's not, she wanted to shout. Instead, she bit her lip. Knight's honor, the hound said, unsmiling. He's not even a knight. She did not say that either. Whether Aya had simply been cowed into submission or was showing the beginnings of a sort of Stockholm syndrome is up for debate. For Sandor's part, it became obvious during the dangerous journey across the river that he had either developed a sudden personal concern for Aya's safety or that he had some as yet unstated interest in keeping her safe. Either way, he kept her out of harm's way during the crossing, and on the other side he offered the ferryman ten gold dragons for the passage, four dragons more than was being demanded. Unfortunately for the ferryman, Sandor's method of payment was the promissory note he had been given by the Brotherhood. It says, Sandor Clegane rummaged in his pouch and shoved a crumpled wad of parchment into the boatman's palm. There, take ten. Ten? The ferryman was confused. What's this now? A dead man's note, good for 9,000 dragons, or nearabouts. The hound swung up into the saddle behind Aya and smiled down unpleasantly. Ten of it is yours. I'll be back for the rest one day, so see you don't go spending it. The man squinted down at the parchment. Writing? What good's writing? You promised gold. Knight's honour, you said. Knights have no bloody honour. Time you learn that, old man. So, there's our first real indication of how much gold Sander had when the Brotherhood captured him, at least 9,000 dragons, for which he'd been given a promise of repayment. While we don't know whether he had other notes still in his pocket, we do know what he thought of the Brotherhood's promises, since he gave the 9,000 dragon note away as if it were, well, worthless paper. And that night, when the Hound made camp with a now feverish Arya, it seemed that the time had come for a serious conversation. Maybe it was because Arya had finally stopped trying to escape, or maybe it was because she didn't speak against him to the ferryman. In any case, he told her that he had never beat Sansa, no doubt a confusing statement to Arya, who had no idea of the treatment her sister had been enduring, but that he would beat her if she didn't stop trying to kill him. None of it will do you any good, he said. 
He also pointed out that if she were to escape, she'd only get caught by someone worse. A fair point, considering the number of times Arya had been scooped up against her will in the Riverlands. When she declared that there was no one worse, Sanders said, You never knew my brother. Gregor once killed a man for snoring. His own man. And then it got interesting, because at last Arya could say something that surprised her captor. I did so know your brother, him and Dunson and Poliver, and Raph the Sweetling and the Tickler. Sandor thought she was talking about King's Landing, and seemed confused since Gregor didn't bring his men to court. And so she elaborated, quite matter-of-factly. I know them from the village, the village by the lake where they caught Gendry, me and Hot Pie. They caught Lommy Greenhands too, but Raph the Sweetling killed him because his leg was hurt. The hound seemed to find that news hilarious, laughing and saying, Gregor never knew what he had, did he? He couldn't have, or he would have dragged you back kicking and screaming to King's Landing and dumped you in Cersei's lap. Oh, that's bloody sweet. I'll be sure to tell him that before I cut his heart out. Arya was nonplussed by the Hound's openness about wanting to kill his brother. For one thing, she was still under the impression that both Clegane brothers were on the same team, committing atrocities for House Lannister. When he asked if she hadn't ever wanted to kill Sansa, she replied that no, she wanted to kill him. His reply to that was a lesson in grayness. Because I hacked your little friend in two? I've killed a lot more than him, I promise you. You think that makes me some monster? Well, maybe it does, but I saved your sister's life, too. The day the mob pulled her off her horse, I cut through them and brought her back to the castle, else she would have gotten what Lawless Stokeworth got. And she sang for me. You didn't know that, did you? Your sister sang me a sweet little song. Arya didn't believe him, didn't want to believe him, but his next question and its answer completely turned her expectations upside down. He asked where she thought they were and where they were going, even as she replied that he was bringing her back to King's Landing, to Joffrey and Cersei, she knew she was wrong. Sandor's reply was the most clear indication we get, since he left King's Landing, the Knight of the Blackwater, of what his goals were, and given recent events, most of what he had to say was fairly predictable. Here's the passage. Bugger Joffrey, bugger the Queen, and bugger that twisted little gargoyle she calls her brother. I'm done with their city, done with their Kingsguard, done with Lannisters. What's a dog to do with lions, I ask you? The river was the trident, girl. The trident, not the black water. Make the map in your head, if you can. On the morrow, we should reach the King's Road. We'll make good time after that, straight up to the twins. It's going to be me who hands you over to that mother of yours, not the noble lightning lord or that flaming fraud of a priest, the monster. You think your outlaw friends are the only ones who can smell a ransom? Don Darian took my gold, so I took you. You're worth twice what they stole from me, I'd say. Maybe even more if I sold you back to the Lannisters like you fear, but I won't. Even a dog gets tired of being kicked. If this young wolf has the wits the gods gave a toad, he'll make me a lordling and beg me to enter his service. He needs me, though he may not know it yet. Maybe I'll even kill Gregor for him. He'd like that. 
Arya, still outraged at being his captive, refused to believe that her brother would ever reward Sander Clegane. But back at the Burning Septree, recall that Thoros had specifically raised both Sandor's desperation for gold and the possibility of him seeking to serve Rob Stark. For his part, the Hound was indifferent, knowing that Rob would pay his price even if he refused to take him into service. Either way, I win, he said, and then added, so stop whimpering and snapping at me. I'm sick of it. Keep your mouth shut and do as I tell you, and maybe we'll even be in time for your uncle's bloody wedding. The next chapter opens with the pair arriving at the twins days later. Sandor, borrowing the terminology of the Brotherhood, had foraged a wagon with a team of draft horses and a load of casks, along with clothing and boots from a farmer they met on the King's Road. Disguised as a farmer and his boy, Sandor bluffed his way past Sir Donald Hay on the road, claiming their cargo and the warhorse stranger, who could not be disguised as anything other than what he was, were wedding gifts from Lady Went. As Sir Donald was left behind, Sandor told Aya, I've taken more horses off him than I can count, armour as well. Once I near killed him in a melee. The lesson to Aya was that knights, and by extension the nobility in general, never actually looked at peasants, and thus were quite easy to fool. As they got closer to the twins, in spite of how well Sandor's plan appeared to be working, Aya could not overcome a knot in her stomach. It says, Last night she'd had a bad dream, a terrible dream. She couldn't remember what she dreamed of now, but the feeling had lingered all day. If anything, he had only gotten stronger. Yeah, and we have to wonder if that was a wolf dream, warning her of danger in the same way we've seen Grey Wind, for instance, sensing danger coming for Rob. Perhaps Nymeria was even sensing her packmates' unease as Rob and Catelyn arrived at the twins themselves. Arya's own unease grew the closer they got to the twins, though she knew she should be excited and told herself she had nothing to worry about as they arrived at the area where the army was encamped, Rob's army. She recalled that Roost Bolton, whom she feared, was part of that army, and that dredged up the old familiar angst over what her mother and brother, who had last seen her at Winterfell more than a year and a half ago, would think of her. They arrived in the evening as the rain continued to beat down upon them and the description of the sounds that greeted them is telling. The river is described as growling and even growling like a lion in its den and the music was an unpleasant cacophony that quote, sounded more like a battle than a song due to the fact there were entirely different songs being played in each of the phrase twin castles. As Arya looked for a familiar face or even a familiar banner, the only one she recognized was that of House Smallwood. All the others were hanging limp and unrecognizable in the rain. The first sigil she identified on a person belonged to the guards who stopped them as they approached the castle on the near bank, the sergeant wearing a pink cloak and the rest wearing flayed man badges on their tunics. Although they were refused entry to the castle itself, "'Castle's closed. The lordlings are not to be disturbed,' the sergeant said." They were allowed into the grounds and directed to the feast tents. On the way through the grounds, Arya noted four archers stringing their longbows, a curious activity for men at a wedding, but only notes that they weren't men she recognised. 
She also sees torches on the walls of the castle gatehouse and many men, as well as a steady stream of men with torches, moving across the bridge from the west castle to the east. A word about the layout of the twins, as most know it is comprised of two castles, connected by their famous bridge, the crossing, which not only gave the lords of House Frey their name, but had been so instrumental in the Stark-Frey alliance in a Game of Thrones. The main residence of Lord Walder, and the great hall in which the wedding would be held, were in the East Castle, which happened to be the side the King's Road, and thus Iron Sandor, approached from. Rob Stark's army had approached from Riverrun and the west and had been led across either to guest chambers in the water tower, athwart the bridge itself, and the east castle, or to the camps of the east bank that Arya and Sandor were riding through. Seeing a stream of men approaching from the west was ominous since the army were all allegedly in the camps, celebrating the wedding in progress. And then Arya noticed that while the Bolton sergeant had said the castle was closed, the portcullis was being raised, even as she watched. As the drawbridge was lowered and Arya began to think excitedly of her reunion with her family, first Sandor and then Arya became aware of armed men pouring out of the castle gate and across the drawbridge, quote, a river of steel and fire, the thunder of their destriers crossing the drawbridge, almost lost beneath the drumming from the castles. Men in mounts wore plate armor, and one in every ten carried a torch. The rest had axes, long axes with spiked heads and heavy, bone-crushing, armor-smashing blades. It says that Sandor cursed and knocked Arya off their wagon before leaping down himself, grabbing his concealed sword as he went. And then, amidst the rapidly unfolding chaos, Arya heard a wolf howling. It says, It wasn't very loud compared to the camp noise and the music and the low ominous growl of the river running wild, but she heard it all the same. Only maybe it wasn't her ears that heard it. The sound shivered through Aya like a knife, sharp with rage and grief. As riders continued to pour out of the castle, Arya became aware of noises behind her, and when she looked, she noticed that where there had been three huge feast tents, there were now only two. One had collapsed, and a moment later went up in flames. Then she saw the fire arrows land as the other two tents collapsed, and she heard screams through the cacophony of music and howling and the steel song of axe and sword. And finally, she became aware that the music had coalesced into, quote, the same song coming from both castles. Arya recognized the song as one of the rain songs that Thomas Evans had played. And who are you, the proud lord said, that I must bow so low? And then three Freys detached themselves from the group and rode full tilt to where Aya and Sandor stood beside their wain, which had mired in the mud. Sandor cut Stranger loose and jumped on his back, turning to meet the riders. With the words from the reigns of Castamere, a song and its implications surely well known to her companion, ringing in her ears, and the riders fast approaching, it says... Aya had prayed a hundred hundred times for the hound to die, but now there was a rock in her hand, slimy with mud, and she didn't even remember picking it up. Who do I throw it at? He is one against three. Aya still clutched her rock. They're sure to kill him, 
she thought of Micah, the butcher's boy, who had been her friend so briefly. When one of the riders veered in her direction, Arya attempted to hide behind the wagon, but he circled around, clearly targeting her. He was definitely a fray, and Arya was confused. Weren't the Freys her brother's friends? In a culmination of all the terrible things she had seen and heard about her brother's soldiers over the past weeks, the man bore down on her, long axe at the ready. She forgot about Sandor and threw her stone at the man's head before running around the wagon again. As they circled, the man grew impatient and started to yell that she couldn't run forever, but then Sandor's axe took him in the back of his head. All three of their pursuers were dead now, and Sandor was on a war footing, ordering her to get his helm out of the wagon. With Clegane outfitted with his hound helm, on his war horse with long axe at the ready, he cut an intimidating and instantly recognisable figure. When Arya started to ask about her brother, he shouted the brutal truth at her. Dead! Do you think they'd slaughter his men and leave him alive? Look! Look, damn you! And when Arya turned to look at the camp, she saw scenes of pure butchery. The feast tents were all ablaze, along with some of the barrack tents and pavilions. She could hear swords and screams, and saw two knights riding down a fleeing soldier. Then she saw a barrel of burning oil or pitch fly through the air to land on one of the tents and knew that the castle was attacking the camp. Urgently, Sandor reached to pull her up on the horse, saying, We have to get away from here, and now. The music had been reduced to a single drum, quote, Its slow, monotonous beats echoing across the river like the pounding of some monstrous heart. The rain was once again described in human terms. The black sky wept, and the river, in monstrous ones, the river grumbled. As men around her died, and Arya tried to convince herself that her cheeks were wet with rain, and that if they could just get into the castle, they'd find Rob and her mother, and it would all be one big misunderstanding. Brutally, Sander called her a stupid little bitch, and insisted that if she got inside, she would never come out. He had certainly taken the measure of what was happening much faster than Arya had, and while she was still pleading to find Kat and maybe save her, he delivered an ultimatum. Maybe you can. I'm not done living yet. Stay or go, she-wolf. Live or die. He was about to say your choice, as he had done during their first few days together, always giving her the choice to either obey him or suffer the consequences when she turned and ran. The gate to the twins was closing, but Arya ran desperately for it, still certain she could get inside and find her mother and brother. But as she splashed across the sloppy ground near the riverbank, it says she turned back to see Stranger in pursuit. The utter chaos of this chapter, which falls immediately after Catelyn's final point of view, so the reader already knows the truth of everything Sander is saying, reaches a crescendo as it ends. Here's the final passage of the chapter. She heard loud splashing and looked back to see Stranger pounding after her, sending up gouts of water with every stride. She saw the long axe, too, still wet with blood and brains. And Arya ran, not for her brother now, not even for her mother, but for herself. She ran faster than she had ever run before, her head down and her feet churning up the river. She ran from him, as Micah must have run. His axe took her in the back of the head. 
the descriptive power of putting Aya in exactly the same position that Micah the Butcher's Boy had been in, running from Sandor Clegane on horseback, is breathtaking, as is that ten-word cliffhanger of a sentence that ends the chapter. Fortunately for readers, Aya 11 is not her final POV chapter in A Storm of Swords. Imagine having to wait five long years to discover what had really happened there. As it happens, we only have to get through 12 intervening chapters before we get to Aya 12, and that's where we'll pick up Aya's story in our next episode, as we cover the final two chapters of A Storm of Swords spent wandering a post-Red Wedding wasteland with Sandokl again, before we move on to her handful of chapters scattered across A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. Aya is the only POV with chapters in all five books in the series, and this series shows us why. She is a powerful observer of many things we would never see otherwise, and numerous secondary characters with huge plot relevance weave their way through her chapters. Most of A Storm of Swords has been an exercise in frustration for Arya. Frustration at being captured again, frustration at her own identity betraying her desire for freedom, and frustration with the very gods who seemed determined not only to protect Sander Clegane from her vengeance, but also to continually place him in her path, linking her fate to his in a way that, even after they part ways at the end of A Storm of Swords, will feel like unfinished business. She learned much and more about the greatness of the world, that her own pack might not be who she thinks they are, and, like her sister back in King's Landing, she was learning that Unlike in songs, true heroes are few and far between. We hope you've enjoyed this episode covering Arya's A Storm of Swords arc and that you'll join us for the next installment when Arya will break out of the pattern of escape and captivity she's been locked in since she fled King's Landing and find herself immersed in a world she never would have dreamed of in her younger days. And now, as always, it's time to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for Arya and Beric and Sandor and all the rest, and thanks to Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here too. Our heartfelt thanks to Atori Loon, AJ, Aegon the Sixth, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Ashanat Yara, Oakenfist, Bran the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint Deandel, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Courtney, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Lady Diana Dane, Esme, Liz, Emily the Eerie, Evan, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Sir Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, History of Westeros, Isaac, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Cenarion, The White Storm, Julie Beth of Tarth, Judson, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Kenneth, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Lynn, Lomas Knight Rider, Survivor of the Yeen Sleepover, Nessie the Questing Beast, Mage Marmot, Monero Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, Matt M, Matt R. 
as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Molly, Nimble Nick One Eyrick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, Peter, PJ, Paul H, Paul B, King Ray, first of his name, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Gray, Sheila, Cern, That Shiny Bastard, The Rat Chef de Cuisine, Terry, Sir Terence Knight of the Cedars, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Quarren Halfhand, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.